Hi everybody, I'm Seth Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest, Peter Baines, is described as one of Australia's most effective solopreneurs. He's a former police officer and forensic investigator, and he's received the Order of Australian Medal for his humanitarian work as the founder of well-known charity Hands Across the Water, which launched following the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004 and has since gone on to create homes and opportunities for thousands of children in Thailand. Peter's also the author of three books, Hands Across the Water, Doing Good by Doing Good and Leadership Matters, Stories and Insights for Leaders, Achievers and Visionaries. Now, if you've ever wondered how to find your purpose and make a real impact, well, Peter has some great advice on how you can marry the two. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. It's great to have a chat. Excellent. Now, I would quite like to delve into your hands across the water journey. I mean, it's been very instrumental in making a positive impact on the lives of children in Thailand. But could you share for our listeners a little bit of the origin tale, why you were inspired to start the charity, obviously um, the tsunami, etc. cetera, but a, a little bit of that backstory for us? Yeah, sure. So I worked for New South Wales Police as a forensic investigator and uh, went to Bali after the bombings. And my role there was to identify uh, the bodies uh, and uh, repatriate them back to those uh, countries where they'd come from. And and the work that we did in Bali kind of set us up for if something else happened in that Asia-Pac, Southeast Asia region that we'd be called upon. And so that was exactly what happened after the tsunami in 2004. Uh, I got a call, I was on holidays at the time and uh, was told to return to work and that I'd be heading overseas. So I spent several months leading the Australian and international operation in the identification of the bodies that we recovered after the tsunami. And uh, it was on the last uh, rotation into Thailand where I met a group of kids uh, who had all lost their uh, their families lost their home and uh, they were living in this tent within a temple. And uh, when I met the kids, I realised I couldn't change what had happened, uh, but it felt within my capacity to change what happened next for them. So I returned to Australia and set up uh, the charity uh, um, Hands Across the Water. And the, the, the goal was to raise enough money to build a home and initially I thought that was all that I'd needed and the job was over but uh, when I went over for the opening of that first home I realised indeed that the the job had just started and 18 years on as we sit here today we're still working and um, um, the challenge and the opportunities are bigger than they've ever been. Mm. Now you recently wrote a piece for us about the importance of finding a journey that's worthy of one's heart and soul. And I think it's pretty Mm. fair to say you've found that journey with hands across the water. And obviously you were profoundly impacted by your experiences as a a member of the police force and working in those recovery teams. But for most of us, we don't face those life-altering situations. So how would you suggest we find that purpose and passion in in our daily lives? 
Yeah, I don't think you need anything as uh, as big or profound as uh, uh, what I was involved in, and and it was more the nature of circumstance that uh, meeting the kids it just seemed to be the right thing to do. So I didn't feel it was a calling or I didn't have an epiphany or anything like that. It just seemed to be the right thing, and and um, you know I think the for for all of us uh, to find something. Uh, uh, it's a Seth Godin quote that talks about the challenge of our time is to find a journey worthy of our heart and soul. And, and you know, I think particularly those within Australia in a broad sense is that we live a fairly uh, uh, comfortable uh, life and certainly affluent life compared to a lot of people in, in different countries. And, and uh, when our immediate challenges are taken care of, I think the... the, the the opportunity and indeed that challenge is to find something that's meaningful to us and something that's beyond beyond work beyond the provision of of the you know our immediate needs upon beyond the accumulation of, of of wealth and it's something that does um, feed feed your soul and uh, and for everyone that'll be different you know for some it can be as simple as taking time out uh, to do something, it might be you know walking, trekking through the bush. It might be painting. It might be you know traveling. Whatever it is, I think it's something that we we all need to uh, work towards because it brings that uh, extra dimension and that level of content and happiness in our lives. Mm. So you mentioned um, at the beginning, you know, you you started this. You 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 went over. You you. You came home. You raised the money. You thought, "Oh, it's just going to be this, this one home." How did you then realize, actually, no, it's not this. There's so much more to be done, and this is going to become kind of my journey. Yeah, it was. It was when we were over there for the opening of the first home that funds had been raised for, and it's a really quick, clear, uh, um, you know, memory for me as I was driving away after the opening and the ceremony and everything that had happened and and I looked um, back to the home and and um, thought well what happens now who, who takes care of the funding to uh, uh, you know pay for the recurrent costs of the building for the staff for the kids and and uh, I was driving away on that day that I realized uh, uh, the journey uh, hadn't in fact come to an end but it really had just started and uh, um, and 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 then there was a lot of growth uh, because one of the things I've worked in international crisis and disaster areas in Indonesia, Thailand, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and Australia, and and lots of people in the aftermath in the immediate aftermath of a crisis turn up. Uh, there'll be government, there'll be NGOs, there'll be charities and corporate, and they put their flag in the ground. And they say we're here, but. Uh, sadly, too many leave too quickly. And uh, what we saw was the number of kids uh, uh, within 12 months of opening the, the home doubled. And uh, then it became necessary to build another home. And then uh, the opportunities uh, to support others uh, just continued to present. And some we said yes to and some we said no to, but uh, it led to the growth where we are today. So what did you know about running a charity before you launched Hands Across the Water? I'm thinking nothing. Absolutely nothing. nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It was, 
you know, it was a really strange, um, you know, occurrence. And I, and I guess it's one of the messages that uh, I share is if, if we wait until we've got all of the answers to all of the possible questions, if we wait until the time is right to do the things that we might want to do, well, that time might never come. And, uh, and uh, I knew absolutely nothing. And, and the, the reason I was able to raise the money and, and, and made a start was that uh, I, I guess I was just focused on the results and not the excuses as to why we could do it as opposed to why it didn't make sense. And, you know, I can stack a whole lot of reasons up as to why it didn't make sense to embark on that journey. But uh, um, indeed, starting um, can be the easiest, but it also can be the hardest initial step. And uh, I was able to raise the funds. I didn't have a network of um, uh, philanthropic friends. I, I, I wasn't in corporate. I didn't have um, the skill set. I didn't have the knowledge uh, to raise the funds. But uh, very early on, I'd been invited to uh, speak and share my stories and, and uh, to get paid for sharing those stories. And, and uh, uh I embarked upon that journey and used the funds that I was paid uh, to speak at conferences to build the first home. And uh, so that was, that was uh, um, you know, where the funding came from and it was a model that worked and the growth continued from there. Mm. So how has it changed since then? That sounds very kind of grassroots, you getting amongst it at, at the beginning. Mm. Is, is that still the case or...? or... Uh, you've progressed a lot further from that. Oh, certainly this this uh, size and scale of the of the charity has grown, and uh, you know we started supporting one home with thirty two kids, and uh, over the last eighteen years we've uh, um, we've grown to have raised over thirty million dollars, and up until COVID, a hundred percent of those funds that we raised went directly to the projects on the ground in Thailand, and. I established a social enterprise that sits next to the charity and it met the operational fundraising costs. And, uh, you know, back in 2007, our operating costs were $50,000 a year and now they're $2 million a year. Um, Since since we started, we we had that one home and now we've got uh, seven properties all across Thailand. And at any time, there'll be 300 kids spread across those projects and We've got uh, 33 kids have graduated from university, another 23 are currently studying and, and uh, so this, this, everything's grown, uh, the yeah. costs, the, uh, on the ground, the activities, uh, the number of uh, kids, the, the extent of the support. You know, we've yeah, the scope of investing, support. Yeah, investing in education and different employment opportunities and, and um, you know, it's all that evolution that comes with uh, growth. So uh, a lot of our businesses that listen to the podcast are small business owners or soloists, micro business, um, and I guess corporate social responsibility, ESG, that kind of stuff, often might seem to them as though it's a big business thing, but really small businesses can also make a difference. So what are some kind of ways you think small business owners could kind of incorporate community and philanthropy into their their values and day-to-day culture yeah it's a really interesting question and um, 
I think that the very uh, uh, nature of the terminology of corporate social responsibility suggests that it is just for corporate. But um, uh, the second book I wrote on commission from Wiley was called uh, Doing Good by Doing Good. And it was it's all about turning that CSR or ESG, um, whatever you know, words you want to wrap around it into a profit center to a business. And I think even more important for small business is that if they're looking to partner with charity or community groups, is it not be philanthropy, it not be a philanthropic approach, because that means that uh, that, that, that really is a one way transaction where you give a portion of your net profit and you give uh, time and resources, but uh, it's very much one way, and uh, and I think that's what philanthropy traditionally is, and and I don't think that's in the best interests of either the charity or the business owner, because when we're going through uh, difficult economic times, and you know, right now is a classic example of business and and households and small business, um, you know, with the increased interest rates and so forth. Uh, finding it a bit tough and looking to cut expense. And if if our support of charity is based on one of philanthropy, then it will be one of the first expenses to go, uh, and then followed by, you know, training and learning and development and so forth. And they're seen as a discretionary spend. So what we need to do is change that CSR. So from one of a cost centre to one of a profit centre, and when we view it differently, and this is where it can be done by small business, where their their relationships turn um, their their support of charity into a profit centre for their business, and why that's good for the charity is because when times get hard, uh, times requires a reduction in expenses. Well, if your if your CSR program is indeed a profit centre, you're unlikely to um, to take that out of the business and it, it's not complex it doesn't have to be something which is beyond small business it's just adopting a different mindset and uh, it, it's entering into the partnership with the charity or with the the uh, community group um, looking at what are the clear uh, outcomes going to be and um, you know we don't go into a, a joint venture or a business with a supplier without understanding uh, where the return is and what the costs are and what the benefits are. Uh, but a lot of people think that they shouldn't be having those conversations with charity. And uh, as a founder of a charity, I'd suggest to you that that is indeed the best things for both sides. So it's absolutely within the wheelhouse of uh, small business to have that and to have a profit centre. Mm. So what kind of conversations then should business owners be be having with their charity partners? One of the, the things to get clear on at the beginning before you select a charity partner and, and a lot of organisations, both large and small, will select their charity partner because, an because of an association with a founder or the cause or some type of social connection with someone involved in the charity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing for the charity, it doesn't mean, oh, or for the business, it doesn't mean that the rest of the organisational team are invested and share the same passion. So I think one of the things that I help um, businesses do is establish a set of guiding principles before they select the charity partner. And when you go through and establish those guiding principles that are going to, they act as a filter 
And uh, because so many times when I work with an organization, they sit down and they there'll be two types. One, they'll either have a charity partner and it hasn't been effective or the, the effectiveness is long gone or they're new. And uh, I guarantee you that within that, that first hour of the conversation, they're asking, when do we pick the new charity partner? And it, it's kind of putting things around the wrong way because what we need to establish is what are the, the boundaries, what are the principles uh, that we need to establish in selecting a charity partner? Because we need to look at um, uh, uh, the size. Uh, because if you're a, a small business and you're donating to a very large uh, charity, a well-known brand, uh, which has a um, yeah, huge turnover, well, your contribution is unlikely to uh, you know, deliver a, a, a positive return to you because it's just the economies of scale. So one of the things we need to look at is finding a charity partner where your contribution will be make a significant difference and you start to have that equal partnership. Then we look at things like uh, transparency and governance and, and alignment and your ability to uh, interact with the charity if that's part of it. So, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a fair amount of work that goes into it, but it's uh, investing in something that you get right and will have a, a, a long-lasting and important uh, uh, impact on the business. Mm. So how much should businesses make sure that those values align um, with the charity that they've chosen and also that what they're contributing is genuinely going to benefit that charity. You know, like it, if we're not going to make it, as you say, my support of a charity is, oh, I give XX amount of money and I'm being, look at my philanthropic efforts, if it's more more meaningful than that, how do we make sure that there is benefit both ways and the values are shared? Yeah, so that's in the, that's in the work that's done before the setup and the agreement, and uh, you know if you if we've got a small business, we need to understand what's their capacity, um, and is it around time, is it around knowledge, is it around funding, is it around all of those, and we look at what the contribution can be. We look at the areas of interest that make sense to the business. So one of the a number of the benefits that should be coming from a CSR program is. Uh, is the retention of staff, the, the attraction of staff, the attraction and retention of new clients, the brand differentiation, uh, new new business opportunities. And there's a whole series of fundamental reasons and outcomes that a business should be looking for from their charity partner. And once we're clear on what they are, uh, then we can apply this filter and uh, set our guiding principles that then ensures that we're working with a charity where our contribution is valued and it is meaningful. And that's where the work is done in the alignment between the two partners. Because if you're giving you know, $20,000 in resources and funding, uh, for example, to an organization that has a budget, an annual budget of $20 million, well, you're not going to create much, much of an impact. But if you find yourself with a charity that might have a, a budget of $200,000 and you're giving 20000 well, your contribution and your relationship is a lot more valued. And uh, um, and there, we, we can come to the table as equal partners as opposed to a, um, a, a small donor. So that's the work that's done. And it's, uh, um, it's just based upon understanding the values of the desires, um, and putting in place the KPIs for, for both 
sides to be clear on what the relationship looks like. Mm. And what about employee buy-in? Because we probably would like our staff to also be personally involved in our charities that we've chosen, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and that's where, um, you know, a number of businesses, it, it, the, the founder may have a connection, their best friend or uh, husband or wife or, you know, brother or sister or child has, a, a, a you know, an uh you know, an illness or something or a connection to a charity and, you know, you might, you know, support uh, uh, prostate cancer, you might support breast cancer or something like that. Now, not, not saying any of that's wrong, but the, the question is if you've got a team of 30 people uh, in your business, um, does that make sense to them to be uh, connected to breast cancer? for example, or prostate cancer or, you know, uh, my charity, for example. And and then it's also the broader question is you've got the employees, but then you've got your client base. And um, if you're looking to create an effective CSR program, we need to consider all of the stakeholders. And when I build the programs for organisations, we actually build, a, we, we put in place a, a foundation committee or board or whatever you might want to call it. And it's representatives uh, from across the business and key stakeholders. And we we, we engage with stakeholders of the business. So current clients, potential clients, uh, uh, suppliers, um, uh, and, and of course the uh, staff, the team and employees to contribute to the conversation because there's, there's a bigger chance of getting buy-in if people have had a, an opportunity to contribute than something imposed upon them that just might not make sense to them. Hmm. So in your journey of like building and leading hands across the water, were there any significant challenges that you faced? Like, and if so, like, how did you overcome them? Yeah, like the, the biggest challenge was um, uh, we had year on year growth from uh, when I started in uh, 2005 and very easy when you, you're just starting something and, and uh you know, business owners know that if you've if you've got a model that's working, um, it's easy to achieve that growth. And it gets harder as you go on longer. And uh, for us, the biggest challenge was COVID. And uh, we had the if effectively become a an events based uh, organisation. So we don't, and as strange as, as as strange as this might sound, we don't seek uh, just to raise money. We don't seek from our supporters and donors just to raise money. We seek to provide meaningful experience and meet the needs of our donors. And when we can provide value to them first, uh, then the funds come. And that might be through our, our charity bike rides we run in Thailand or different programs that we've got. So we provide reason for people to be involved. So that was um, hugely uh, effective for us. And uh, in 2020, uh, we had uh, a 200 bike riders, uh, over six rides confirmed, all raising between five and $10,000 to ride with us in Thailand. And it was our biggest year ever. And the 13th of March, everything fell apart. Now, the biggest challenge we faced was that we lost uh, 73% of our income uh, over those uh, next two years. Uh, but what made it even more difficult was that our operating costs, our recurrent costs didn't change. So, you know, if you're in business and your uh, your income is uh, is declining, will you look at removing costs? Well, the costs for us of running our homes and the staff and the kids and keeping the kids in university and education, that didn't change. So without question, that was uh, 
you know, the biggest and toughest uh, um, challenge. And, and it was also a huge loss of momentum. We had some really big projects that, and exciting projects that were uh, coming on board in late 19, uh, early 2020 and throughout that year. And um, there was so much momentum lost. Uh, so, with it, yeah, without question, those uh, couple of years were the, the most challenging. So how did you maintain your resilience to be able to keep pushing forward during such difficult times? Yeah, I think um, when we talk about resilience, uh, the thing for me is one of the ladies that uh, I've worked with uh, who I met in 2010, um, who's the director of one of our homes in the northeast of Thailand. And and uh, she'd been running a home for, uh, for kids for 24 years before I met her. And uh, she... Um, she was uh, faced with significant challenges. The kids were uh, high dependent uh, on medical needs. Many of them had HIV and um, many of them uh, couldn't prove Thai identity. So that meant they had to access healthcare through the private healthcare system. And, and it created you know, huge challenges for her uh, because she didn't have enough medicine or resources to support all of the kids. And, and uh, children were effectively dying uh, because of the lack of access to medicine. And, um, and that was a journey she faced for 24 years. And, and uh, when I met her in 2010, we committed to meet all of her uh, recurrent costs, ensure all of the kids had access to all of the medicine they needed, and the kids stopped dying. But on my reflection of her journey, of her having buried over 1,000 children in 24 years, the thing when I think about resilience and how did she wake up and continue each day uh, was not letting yesterday define her tomorrow. And, uh, and, I, and I think on top of that, her hopes have always been greater than her fears. And so having her um, as part of uh, my life, um, I drew upon her resilience and her learnings to help us and help me continue um, to, to, to wake up and, and uh, look at what we could do the next day uh, that was needed. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, there's always going to be someone else's experience of life as, you know, that is more challenging than yours and can give you a different perspective on, on things. So I'm wondering as well from in terms of that crisis management and disaster response and that area of your life, how that has impacted your resilience and your ability to to handle change and evolving circumstances? Yeah, I, 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 you know, you can't do and be exposed to what I've uh, done uh, through my career um, and not uh, take something from it. And, uh, and I think, you, you know, there's a number of things that uh, I've taken on it at that leadership level uh, from working and, and observing others uh, in times of crisis and disaster. And, and there's a number of key things. Um, I think that the most important thing is, uh, is to have courage in your leadership uh, to make difficult decisions and, uh, and to keep moving forward. I think the uh, uh, many organisations, um, you know, wind themselves up and bind themselves in policy and procedure and and they think that that creates safety and predictability and removes risk but in you know my view whilst there's a place for all of that 
obviously. Um, I think we defer to that and default to that too often. And in, in, in crisis and disaster, um, you, you know, often the policy and procedure manuals and all of those type of things are irrelevant because we haven't been able to predict uh, the scale or nature of what we're confronted with. And then when those policies and procedures are, don't fit, then it comes down to leadership. And uh, I've seen and worked with some incredible leaders and and a lot of it is we don't have to have all of the answers. Uh, we don't have to bring about change, but there's a uh, um, huge value in being present with those that you're leading. And uh, and as I say, I think the biggest thing for, for leaders in times of crisis um, is to be present and and have the courage uh, to make decisions because I honestly believe that if we if we consult where we can if we act with good integrity and good intent and we get it wrong uh, we'll be forgiven but uh, in times of crisis and disaster and so forth uh, we don't forgive people who are uh, who who uh, don't have the courage to make those difficult decisions. Mm. Yeah, it's that actions speak louder than words old adage, I think. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, working in where there's, uh, you know, in Thailand, we had 450 staff from 36 different countries. So the position or the title um, that you came to the country with was irrelevant. And uh, true leaders will be identified by their actions and reactions, not the positions that they hold. Mm -hmm. Getting back to that corporate social responsibility side of things, we're often pushed to just think locally in terms of that. What what are you doing on the ground here? What are you doing for your local community? What are you doing for, you know, other Aussies, etc.? But what about global causes? I mean, environment for one thing, global warming, blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, how can small businesses ensure that they have responsible practices that also not only meet the needs of their local community but are addressing those kind of global challenges like environmental sustainability, you know, human rights, responsible sourcing, all those things that that, um, there's a lot of lip service to but it can be difficult as a small business owner to know where to start. Yeah, you've you've, uh, you've put put on the table some big things to tackle there around uh, some big challenges, and and I think that's uh, like in that second book, um, I talk about the uh, a shared value, which is engagement of the entire supply chain, and it's not as in our values are aligned, but it is that uh, uh, that entire supply chain. So where we're looking at. If we're uh, importing goods, for example, uh, we're looking at the working conditions um, in which the that exist in the manufacturers of where the goods are, are made. We're looking at the sourcing of the the raw materials. We're looking at the uh, the the cost efficiency and the uh, so forth of uh, uh, transporting goods from uh, one side of the. The, the globe to the other in, in saving costs, but what's the net effect with emissions and so forth? And, and you know, I think that that becomes quite a big um, a big uh, piece to, to bite off and chew when we're looking at all of that. And, uh, um, and that's hard for, for business to, uh, to get their head around when, partic- when, we, when we consider that most of this stuff for a small and medium business, it's not their core business. It's not what they're about. 
and uh, and their investment in uh, these type of programs. Um, and when you talk about those things that you just did with global warming and emissions and you know all of that, that can be just become too big and too hard. But uh, I think that 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 and that's where the investment in time in planning what you're going to do um, is the most important thing to take on a challenge, take on a cause that's meaningful uh, and makes sense. And uh, um, it might be um, an international, a national, a local charity partner. It might be just that it makes sense to be just local. You know, there's there's a whole series of reasons why you would pick one charity over another, whether it's domestic, whether it's uh, within your local community, or whether it's a it's an international charity partner. And um, you know, I don't think there's one rule that applies for all. I think it's the work that needs to be done is in finding uh, that charity partner that makes sense. Uh, and you know, that might lead you to one or two charity partners. So so that you're, uh, uh, you know, sharing and undertaking different experiences. But, uh, um, yeah, it, I think that the, the key thing is something that uh, can be managed, can be maintained. Um, and uh, because, the, you know, I've seen a number of organisations invest in establishing it, and then you look at it three, four years on, and it's become something that uh, was... Uh, was good and now no one's doing anything with and so you want to avoid that and uh and it might be the case that you start small and do something that makes sense before you expand on those bigger bigger uh, global issues Mm. so i think we've only probably got time for one more question so what what advice or um i don't know key takeaway would you like our listeners to to leave with today about I don't know the power of giving back to communities or why they should be considering um, doing good with their business. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to you know we talked about finding that journey worthy of your heart and soul, and I think it's uh, um, you know we, we've been taught within certainly within Australia is to say that we give with no expectation of return, but as we've discussed. Um, you, you know, that's not really sustainable. So I think it's the important thing is to, if you're looking to engage on a personal level or a business level uh, with an organisation, um, to look at what the returns that you'll get from it because uh, then there's a, a greater chance of it being enduring, being sustainable and meaningful for you And uh, because it's hard to continue to do something where we don't find value. And uh, so I'd say... Uh, invest time uh, and investigate the partnership uh, and do your due diligence uh, before you start handing over your money and make sure that there's going to be a personal return to you. And if not, well, keep looking. Mm. Yeah. yeah, find the right the right cause that's going to make your heart sing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. My pleasure. Where can people get your book, by the way? Amazon? Amazon Booktopia or through my website, which is uh, peterbones.com.au. And uh, if they want to know more about hands, it's uh, handsacrossthewater.org.au. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you.